Hey, welcome back, everybody. It's time once again for Living Hope, a weekly journey designed to provide hope, inspiration, and education for those living with pancreatic cancer. Sharing the real-life stories of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis. With a woman who's dealt with it, well, a little bit, 21 years, I think. Uh, 21 Rupert, years, yeah. Roberta Luna, welcome. Thank you, thank you. It's good to, this is actually our, my first show back since the new year. So happy new year to everybody. And Dr. Tavino, thank you very much for joining us today. I know how busy you are. And as a surgeon in, in chief at VCU Macy's Cancer Center, Dr. Trevino serves as the lead oncology surgeon and demonstrates significant innovative approaches to cancer surgery. In addition to caring for patients and teaching, he is a physician scientist and with his research hopes to develop novel therapies for pancreatic cancer and advance the field of research in pancreatic cancer health disparities and also help hopefully increase our survival rate. It's quite a, you know, quite a history and like I said, very awesome biography you do so much you wear so many hats surgeon oncologist research educator how do you keep it all together how do you do it all you know it's it's a love right it's a passion about what you're doing and i think that sometimes it's just it's all about knowing where the need is right at the end of the day when i was you know studying to be a physician it was always about what was going to be the most challenging and what was going to really drive my passion and really learning education and, and etc and, and as a Early on in my career, I realized that research was the place I wanted to be because as a surgeon, as a clinician, we're kind of limited to some degree. And I wanted to be that person that was going to tackle the biggest obstacles. And and you can't get a bigger obstacle than pancreatic cancer. Yeah, I was going to ask you, why did you pick pancreatic cancer? Do you have any personal connection or it was just because of the challenge? You know, I'm a strong believer in, uh, in faith and believer that God puts you where you're supposed to be. When I was very young, my father's physician as well, and he took me for rounds one morning and the first really clear indication of a patient with cancer was a pancreatic cancer patient that was dying. And as many of us who practice and maybe some fam- people who have had family members with pancreatic cancer, it could be fairly devastating. Um, and watching him suffer and, and really just even from the bedside, um, as my father was speaking to him, really made an impact on me. And I was young. At that time, I had no idea that I was going to pursue a career in medicine and, and let alone career in, sur- career in surgery and let alone a career in pancreatic cancer, oncology and research, et cetera. But I think that that never fully left me and it kind of drove me to where I am today. Yeah, I really, I think I have to agree with you. I think God puts us where we're supposed to be and sometimes it takes us a while to figure out what, what that is, but I really do appreciate it. Like I said, you you've, you wear many hats and you, you've got a lot going on. We've tended to, at least for us, we've pretty much dedicated January for clinical trials to bring awareness. And um, so we've gotten the patient's perspective. We've gotten an oncology nurse's perspective and wanted to kind of reach out to to you, the doctor, and get your perspective. It may be different. It may be the same. I don't know. What what is it that you can share with us? So with regards to clinical trials, I think it's it's a little bit um, depressing to some degree. What we know about clinical trials is this, is that that is kind of the leading way that physicians and researchers figure out the best therapies for patients with cancer and other disease entities. And so it is really the number one way we figure out what the next best therapy is gonna be for our patients. The current problem, and I'm gonna stick to pancreatic cancer because that's where I, you know, that's where my expertise is, um, is the fact that in this country, we know 
that black patients are afflicted um, with this disease um, to some degree that leads them to have a worse overall survival, even when we match them stage for stage. You know, people used to say this was socioeconomic, right? That that some patients um, didn't have the ability to lead to the best centers, et cetera. But when we correct for that, we realize that in general, our biologies are somewhat different. And when we look delved in further, when we think about the Latino community or the Latin community I and mean, Latinas, we realize that they actually do better than anybody else. And the data is out there for that. And so there's there's these clues that, that suggest to us that even though God created us all equal, to some to some extent, we're not. And biology, based upon where we come from, our ancestry, everything we eat, our culture, I mean, just our day-to-day uh, uh, and uh, really makes us just a little bit different. And that biology drives survival to some degree. And so if you think about that and you believe that, and I can tell you that you know this cancer doesn't care whether you're black or white or, or Latino or Latina, it doesn't care. And that this country is, is, is a very diverse country, if you believe in that, then you would think that at the end of the day, when we try to develop the best therapies for our patients with pancreatic cancer, that it would be it would be evened out, right? In the clinical trials, that we'd have a third black, a third, you know, a, you know, a quarter Asian or a third Latino, and then a third white, and what have you. We'd even it out to really kind of balance out what this country is made of. But at the end of the day, when we really looked at the data, we realized that less than 10% of patients with pancreatic cancer are involved in clinical trials. So that, that means that a lot of the data that's out there for standard of care for pancreatic cancer has been driven, has been driven by primarily a white-based population. And if you believe what I said earlier about survivability having something to do with race and ethnicity and that biology can drive us, then that skews our data. And that really doesn't really demonstrate a lot more than to say that a certain percentage of the population will will not be helped with with the drugs that are being developed for clinical trials, and I think that's that that's that's a huge problem for us in this country, that we haven't diversified our ability to really uh, bring in different races and ethnicities to test uh, on others, and I won't spend spend too much more time on this, but at the end of the day, there have been hundreds of clinical trials in whatever disease entity entity you can think of, and this is, resonates throughout a lot of diseases. And if you think that we've thrown away a lot of potential drug combinations because we get a, I don't know, 10% effect, like 10% of those patients will be will be helped with this drug that we tested on a clinical trial. What if that 10% would have done, been so much better if we would have had the diversification of the clinical trial? In other words, all the different races and ethnicities involved to really determine that. And, that, and that's the scary thing is that we might've missed a lot of great opportunities because we haven't really, really provided the representation of this country in the trials that we use or we do. Yeah, I don't mind spending as much time as you want on, on this subject because it is something of interest and also something I volunteer for a few different organizations. And it's something that we've been trying to reach out to, especially the black community. And it's been very difficult. My understanding has always been, you know, they have the highest diagnosis rate and the lowest survival rate. And why is that? And what can we do to change that? Right. And that's a great question. I mean, I love this question. And I'm going to say something that I've said at many podiums, at many national meetings, international meetings, when I get asked to talk about this very topic. You know, the Tuskegee experiments, which are, you know, back in the early 1900s, where there was testing on on black males, and it was just a a bad time for us as physicians in, in what we did. 
And that for a long time kind of resonated through generation after generation that clinical trials and testing um, were, were somewhat biased and, and were unfortunately testing us in a wrong manner or experimenting is what they used to say. But nowadays in the year 2023, I think there's some pretty good data that suggests that no, that while yes, that is a horrible time for US history, at the end of the day, it, it, it's not resonating as much in this in this in this time frame, and so if it's not resonating with them, in other words, blacks and Latinos and Asians are really much very much willing to be part of clinical trials. So where where's the hiccup? Why are we not able to bring them in? And what's interesting is this, and I and, I, and I, I'm telling you, I sit at the podium and I say we need to look at ourselves. There are a lot of things that that we as physicians are are, are not doing appropriately, and when you think about clinical trial eligibility criteria. In other words, what is gonna allow you to be part of this clinical trial? Like we look at criteria, like you have to have this type of cancer, you have to have this stage of cancer, what have you, right? But what we were doing is looking at a lot of eligibility criteria that were were completely excluding a certain patient population, i.e. maybe blacks or Latinos. And a lot of these were based on comorbidities, like let's say hepatitis C, or if you had HIV, or if you had uncontrolled diabetes, or in some cases, you know, decreased renal function or what have you. But what was interesting was this. In the year 2023, we're curing hepatitis C. In the year 2023, we have HIV under, under, under good, for the most part, good control. We can control diabetes because that's what our job is. We're physicians. We should be able to. And hypertension as well. And heck, we got so many drugs right now that we can help a person's heart function to a level where they can survive decades. And so, We've been excluding patients that, in other words, we could be able to treat. And one of my one of my uh, postdoctoral research fellows did an incredible, incredible work. Just did an amazing paper, and and realized that if we modify these criteria to really address what we as clinicians can do in the year 2023, we could even out, if not bring up, the eligibility criteria to allow for a lot more participation. That's one thing that has been resonated throughout. Um, and the other thing is this. You know, there is an unconscious bias amongst physicians to some degree. I mean, there it, it is clear that when you speak on one-on-one to some level that physicians sometimes will walk into a room and see a black patient or a Latino patient, and, and, and they, while the patient could theoretically be a part of a clinical trial, there is this unconscious bias to some degree that feels that automatically the patient and the patient's family is going to say no because they don't want to be experimented because of historical rationale or just even some, like I said, unconscious bias. And that's absolutely, you know, that, that, that kind of hurts me a little bit because as a physician, it's on us. So a lot of what, what we need in terms of getting people to participate can be somewhat dealt with by the physician himself or herself. And we need to assure that we allow that. And number one, fixing eligibility criteria for the year 2023 and not the 1960s. And then at the same time, being a little bit proactive and understanding that, yeah, you know, historically we did some, you know, this country and, and U.S. history has not been the best when it comes to, 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 to these, these trials uh, with drugs. But if we get over that and come and approach the patient in a manner that, you know what, this, you would be so good for this because it would help thousands of people and fully understand the disease process and potentially get to a point of cure or potentially control or something. I mean, that's important and people understand that. And I think sometimes we miss that, we miss that message uh, when it comes to dealing with underrepresented minorities. 
and I love when I get a when I get a Latino patient or Latina patient in my office. I tell them, listen, at the end of the day, there might be a secret in you, right? That we might find something so novel about your tumor that it might help everybody. Because if we find something that makes your survivability better than anybody else, then wow, you know what an amazing contribution to 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 mankind to some degree. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I I think that at the end of the day, yeah, well, there is some historical reasons why people would not participate. I think as physicians, the responsibility lies on us to assure or to help patients understand that this is an incredibly important uh, opportunity to save patients' lives and maybe not only their own, uh, but others as well, thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people with this horrible disease. I speak to a lot of different groups, um, Hispanic whites, and I want to approach the black Americans because it's, I think it's very important because of their, di- you know, their rate of being diagnosed and not surviving. But I've been told, and I don't know if it's true, maybe you can help me out with this, is that it doesn't matter what I say to them because I'm white, they're not going to listen. And I, you know, I don't want to buy that, but what would be the best approach? And do you have any ideas how I can approach this group and talk to yeah. them about clinical trials and pancreatic cancer? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I live in Richmond, Virginia. Um, you know, we're here at the Massey Cancer Center at VCU Health, and I'll tell you that approximately 50% of the patient population coming through our door is from underrepresented minorities. As a safety net hospital, I am so proud of the fact that we serve our community here in Richmond. And I'll tell you this, I have never, ever had that, that, that problem when it comes to discussion of clinical trials with my patients, because at the end of the day, it, it might be the fact that, you know, I'm brown. It might be. It might be the fact that I, I sit down and I pay attention to their needs um, or understand their culture, at least try. And I think that, you know, when people talk to me and say that, you know, I, I can approach whites, I can pr- approach Latinos, I think they're fine, they, they work through, but, you know, they, they're, they don't, uh, Latinos or whites or whatever, don't understand black culture and therefore it's, it's not, it's hard to break into that. I don't know about that. Um, at least not where I'm from. It might be from other other parts of the country, but I think that when you make the gesture that you care and that you try to understand where the patient's coming from, I think it makes a huge impact. Like I used to give talks when I was at, at the University of Florida in the churches in Gainesville, Florida. Now, Gainesville, Florida is like North Central Florida, and there's not there are, there's a black population, but it's it's fairly segregated. And but giving a talk at black churches and, and talking about pancreatic cancer and really demonstrating your your interest in who they are in their community and how, how much they can help really does make a difference. And so, you know, I would say keep on keep on chugging forward <laughs> and I think chugging and, and really kind of break that barrier because it's a matter of trust. And to some degree, some people are, are not gonna forget our history, but some people will. And I think that if you continue to move forward and really promote the need for them um, and and it, it does make ultimately will make a difference. Yeah, well, I hope so because I, I really do care. I mean, I want to reach out to them because I feel, and I don't know, do we know why it's higher in Black Americans and in Hispanics? And I know there's also a Jewish link as well. Um, I can never yeah. remember which one, but do we know why it has such a yeah. high rate? Yeah, what, 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 you know, that is the question of the century, right? I think at the end of the day, and and, and remember that the idea of, of of looking at health disparities in, in pancreatic cancer is, is fairly fairly young. I mean, we, 
I've been pushing this envelope for for years um, to to the powers that be at the NIH and the NCI. And really, I mean, I'm telling you, when I'm telling you I'm pushing it, I am trying to push the doors down to have them understand that that pancreatic cancer is is a health disparity and that blacks are afflicted more than whites and, and to some degree Latinos and Latinas, you know, while the overall prognosis is still bad, I mean, they do better. And, and, and it's taking me some time. And as I'm taking down one person after the other, convincing them that this is the right thing to do to study this as a health disparity, it is still very difficult. You know, as, as we all know, patients with pancreatic cancer, you know, overall survival is not good. But at the end of the day, what I believe as we move forward that the differences are yet to be found. And those differences, I think, are going to make such an impact. And so, you know, there are a lot of people out there doing research on mutations. Now we're testing all pancreatic cancer for, you know, personal mutations within the body as well as within the tumor. I mean, we're, we're now looking at avenues of, of trying to figure out whether a BRCA patient who has a mutation, you know, who has hist- historically been mostly looking at breast cancer now is afflicting the pancreas, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we are still very young in the research that we're doing to try to determine what the differences are. Um, and as we move forward and we start pushing doors down to the funding bodies, like at the NIH, I think they're going to catch on soon and they're going to say, yes, all right, we're going to fund this research because we want to know. And, you know, the way I sell it is this. If we can figure out what it is that afflicts one person, you know, one particular patient population versus another, those are clues. And those clues will help us treat not only that particular patient population, but others as well. Uh, and, and so it's it's incredibly important um, to us to figure this out. But in terms of the answer to why blacks are afflicted more than others, I mean, it is it is we are way behind that answer. But it still doesn't stop us from doing the research to determine that. And I think that I'm hoping that at least within my lifetime, we'll try to figure out you know what small differences there can be that could ultimately lead to large differences. Yeah, it's changed a lot. I was diagnosed in 2002, and my tumor is inoperable because of the location. So, and thank God we've been able to keep it at bay. But, you know, it's always a question is, why am I surviving and others haven't? And I think if we can even find, there has to be a common denominator between the survivors. And if we can find that, I think, you know, we will really go a long way. And I don't know if some of the clinical trials maybe deal with that. Do they try to look for what the... Yeah. What, a, what the survival rate in that? Yeah, wow, what a, what a, what a loaded question. And so, yeah, <laughs> um, you and Paul probably get fired after this comment, but we'll try <laughs> it out. So, you know, I, I'm a little bit skeptical, right? And so you have to understand as a physician who primarily deals with um, with pancreatic cancer, you know, I'm a little skeptical and I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit upset that we haven't made the strides that we need to have made for this disease process. And so I look at the way things once were and, and use this as a, as a foundation to where we should be I mean, 40, 50, 60 years ago, even maybe even 20 years ago, you know, we've put a clinical trial together. Let's say this combination drug for pancreatic cancer, uh, stage four, what have you. We put it out there. And, you know, people would pay a lot of money. Pharmaceutical companies would pay a lot of money because they're the ones that, for the most part, developing the drugs that ultimately, if the drug works, man, you, you, you know, the pharmaceutical company, you know, you know, can get millions, millions of dollars as they they maneuver this drug into 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 clinicals, into the clinics, et cetera. But think of this, right? This is a business for the most part. And while I do believe that they care, it's still a business. And let's just say that you try a drug combination only and you get a five to ten percent response rate. For the most part, that five to ten percent response rate is not going to be enough to push that drug into the next level, and therefore, in some cases, would be considered a failure. 
But what we didn't realize was that why did we do that? Why didn't we say what is different about that five to ten percent that made the drug work? What 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 was it with these patients? There's got to be something about these patients. This five to ten percent that had a really good response rate. Why do we call that a failure when we should dive into what those patients, who they are, where they're coming from, what their tumors like, what their genotype, and to some degree phenotype, or what whatever marker, what characteristic about that patient made that drug work? We didn't do that. And so it's like all these potential opportunities have not been capitalized on because we didn't see this as a marketable drug that was going to bring money. And again, I'm being very skeptical, don't get me wrong, but at the end of the day, I mean, for me, that's exciting. Yeah, you get five to 10% of response, but what what's going on in that five to 10% that makes it response? Well, yes, unfortunately, the other 90% didn't do well, but still all these little kind of, you know, flags are being thrown up saying over here, look over here, and we just didn't do it. And so, you know, a lot, a lot we need to look at ourselves for. <laughs> yeah. I do agree with you, to be honest, and it's kind of difficult because you don't want to think of of any company or any humans being that way. But you know what? If they find a cure, then um, they're going to be out of business. So I'm not saying that they don't want to help, but it just makes me wonder sometimes. And like you say, when you have at least you have a 5% success rate, why can we not look at that as a success? Without question. Yeah, like, you know, when I was first diagnosed, the survival rate was only 4%. Well, now we're up to 12. Well, I mean, it kind of, it's taken us a long time to get to that point, 20 to 21 years. That's, mm-hmm. I think, a little sad. But at the same time, we have to look at at least how many people now are alive that wouldn't have been alive when I was first diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can tell you that 5 to 12% survival rate, I mean, is based upon, you know, really looking at some of the combination drugs that we're putting together. And, and when I tell patients about, you know, what the current standard of care is, you know, it, it's kind of with a sad face because I tell them, listen, you know, we have two reasonably good therapeutics for pancreatic cancer at all stages. And, you know, and these are chemotherapies, right? They're chemotherapies and they're toxins. And, and I explain to them in the, in the best way I can, we're injecting toxins inside of you to try to kill the rapidly growing cancer before the cancer kills you. And to some degree, we want to make sure that, that the toxins don't kill you. And so there's a kind of a fine balance with that. But I think we've done a really reasonable job to bring that percent, you know, to 12% survival rate, you know, and while, yeah, that doesn't sound like it's a big number, you know, we've made some strides. But I think the other thing that we've done, and this is us changing as physicians, as people who treat, is that we started looking at, at not treating the tumor, but we started treating the patient. And I think we forget that sometimes is that, you know, we're not just treating the cancer, we're actually treating the patient. And and I'm a big fan of looking at whole body systems as being af- affected by pancreatic cancer. So I'm looking at heart function, lung function, muscle function, brain function, just quality of life function, psychology. I mean, everything comes together, stress levels, all that stuff plays an incredible role. And when we try to control all these little aspects of things, you'd be surprised how our survivability will increase because now again, we're not just treating the tumor, we're treating the patient. The other thing that I think that we're doing fairly well is a simple fact that as we're doing this and moving forward and treating the whole patient, we're actually paying attention to the drugs that we're giving. For example, if we're giving you drug X and three months later, you're advancing the tumors growing through drug X for three months, it would be logical to say to yourself, this drug isn't working. 
we need to try another set of drugs. And so it's interesting. It's taken us some time to kind of figure that out, which seems logical, right? This doesn't work. We need to try something else. And we've now started to do that. And I think it kind of, in, in a sad way, I smile because at the end of the day, I'm like, what were we thinking? That if we're giving a drug and the cancer is continuously growing, that maybe we need to change the drugs around. And so I give PanCan a lot of credit for this. And I don't like to, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of, you know, throwing names out there. But, you know, they had an incredible trial called Precision Promise. And they did exactly that. They were literally looking at all these novel targeted therapies, therapeutics, what have you. And they were testing, you know, every month or two. And if you were being benefited by this drug, they switched you over. And if in two to three months, you weren't benefited by this drug, we switched you over again. And that, yeah, while it seems like it's a shotgun effect, you know, I have, you know, a couple of personal patients that have had stage four pancreatic cancer for almost two years now that are currently on the trial that have just have looked really good. And it's stable disease. And you're just like shaking your head going, this is remarkable. But it's that, right? I mean, again, the responsibility falls on us as physicians, as doctors who treat these patients. And I think sometimes, you know, we really need to take a lot more responsibility for that. Yeah, I know. I, I've seen the, the change just from, like I said, I was diagnosed in 2002 and then still, you know, I haven't had chemo since 2018. For whatever reason, my tumor became dormant, which I'm very happy with, and we'll just keep it that way. But I have seen the change. I mean, instead of just treating the cancer, they started treating me as the whole person. And when that first started, I was kind of like, wait a minute, does that mean my time is ending or what? And you're trying to be super nice or what? But it made a big difference, I think. And so I think treating the patient as a whole, are we doing that with doctors that are in medical school now? Are we teaching them or are we teaching them differently than it has been done in the past? I don't know. I mean, it's been a while since I've been <laughs> in medical school, but I, I will tell you that, you know, if, when I have students that, or residents or trainees that rotate with me on my clinical status, they hear it every time. I, I will tell you that I do big operations, right? I, I do primarily pancreatic operations for cure. For me, cure is, is a big thing. I mean, it, it's a big step. I'm very careful when I use that word because I know that this is a long fight, regardless of surgery or not. And I, you know, I tell people that this is going to be a fight for five, 10 years. And so if in 10 years you don't have a recurrence, man, you might hear the word cure. So this is a continuous fight. But when I sit down with patients in the clinic and, you know, and I have trainees around me, I always try to teach them, right, that, that we're treating the patient as mentioned. And before I do a big, big surgery, I tell people I need three things from them. And while I'm gonna be standing for a good four or five hours, you know, maybe even six hours in some cases, taking out a big tumor uh, and cancer, pancreatic cancer, I tell them I need three things. So this is a team effort. I tell them we're, we're part of a team. You're leading us, but we're part of a team and I'm here to help as much as I can. I said, first and foremost, I need you to be mentally fit, right? Mentally fit is incredibly important that you really believe that, you know, that, that you're ready for this, that you're gonna go undergo a big operation or a big therapy, systemic chemotherapy, radiation, whatever, that you're ready for it. The other thing is to be nutritionally fit. I mean, you've gotta be strong nutritionally or else you're not gonna do very well. People that are not nutritionally fit, you know, they don't seem to heal well, they don't seem to tolerate therapies well, and it's incredibly important for them to have that. But one of the things that I think people forget sometimes is, well, yes, nutrition and maybe some positive attitude about doing things is incredibly important is to be spiritually fit. And I believe this is a very strong component of my conversation with people. I say this all the time, whether you believe in Buddha, you know, Krishna or, or, or Jesus Christ or Muhammad, you know, I don't care or Gita, I don't care. What I care about is that you believe in something greater than you. 
and that this is no longer under your control and that we are going to make this happen because this has been already set for us to do and that we move forward. And to some degree, every time I've done that, and I do that every single time before I do a surgical resection, a big resection on patients, it brings a sense of calm, a peace. When you let go of the fact that this is not something that you can control, it brings a sense of peace that we, we as a group uh, understand. And that when it's in God's hands and we believe that, truly believe that, I think that people really kind of walk into this, this arena that we can't be beat no matter what happens. And I think that that's really, really positive. And so do I think that this is important for teaching and important for students to understand people's faith, people's beliefs, people's strengths, you know, treating the whole patient that we discussed, even at a level of culture and religion? Yeah, absolutely. I think we need that. Is it happening? I don't know. I hope it is. But when they're with me and they're rounding with me or they're in the clinics, they sure as hell hear a lot of it because, you know, at the end of the day, we have to believe in something. Yeah, and I and I agree because it's something that, like I said, I've been doing this for a very long time, and I know as a volunteer, when people ask me how am I surviving, I'm supposed to say early detection, but you know, and that's part of it, yes. But I I truly believe I'm here because God still wants me to be here. There's something that I need to do, fulfill, whether it's to speak or what. It's when when He's done with me, then that will be the deciding factor. But I truly believe that, and once I changed that attitude, that's when I saw other things change as well as far as my health. Paul, did you have a question? or No, I think we're just coming to the end here. I applaud you for looking at the whole picture because for too long, this is my bias, doctors just see themselves as clinicians, as scientists. I'm going to zero in on this thing. I'm going to find that little, and it's all about, you know, it's all about a procedure. It's all about, and it's just another, they're, they're auto mechanics. You know, they're, they're trying to identify the problem and pull it out. They don't talk to the car, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, so no. you're talking to the people here. Well, I have one quick question. How do you feel about other sorts of alternatives in this mix? Roberta's had people on yoga, acupuncture, I don't know, Chinese traditional, a thousand other things people are throwing into this trying to say, well, what the heck, let's try it. Yeah, you know, I, I'm kind of a mixed feelings about that. I think that, you know, acupuncture, anything that's going to decrease your stress levels are incredibly important. I think that at all levels, whether it's acupuncture, massage, what have you, I think bringing a sense of calm is important. And I can sit here and talk to you about the pathophysiology that I believe is there, including stress responses that ultimately can lead for cancer to grow faster. Mm -hmm. I won't. I'll just say this, that stress levels, just like in any other disease process, are not good for a patient with any disease in, in general. When it comes to the alternative medicines and things like that, there's a lot of things we don't know. And I always tell my patients this because they ask me this all the time. Right. You know, what do you, what do you think about this drug? What do you think about that drug? I always say, I don't know. And I'm sure there's probably the cure for cancer somewhere in the Amazon that we haven't found. I remember <laughs> that movie a long time ago. Yeah. I said, I'm sure it's there, but I don't know. And I just, I'm, I'm very careful about that because in some cases, the receptors on cancer can sometimes be driven by some of the things that we put in ourselves, including herbs and things like that. And so I always am very, very careful when I say you should try this or not try this because it can lead to increased tumor growth and faster aggressiveness, aggressive tumor growth. And so, like I said, the herbals and stuff like that, I'm sure there's probably is some that work, but I would hate to recommend that and then find out that it did the complete opposite. It actually made it grow faster. One so, more question somebody tweeted, and this is something Roberta's talked about and believes in diet. Are there certain things, sugars, that cancer feeds on, or is that a myth? 
Yeah, you know, there's some studies out there that look at some of the sugars like fructose and things like that that can ultimately lead to tumor growth and even drive to some degree some of the pathophysiologies. But I will say this, you know, I just had a patient in my clinic today that just has stage four pancreatic cancer and just incredibly debilitated. And she's like, I don't know why I'm losing so much weight. And I'm putting in, you know, I said, how much are you eating? I said, I'm eating. She goes, I'm eating the same you know, 1200 calories a day or a thousand calories a day. And I'm like, and she's a thin woman now. And she, she looks like she's not doing well with this cancer. And I said, you know, the problem is this, you have to remember the nutrition is absolutely key to survivability. Nutrition is absolutely the key to survivability because without good nutrition, you have no strength. And without good strength, you can't tolerate any form of therapy. And therefore you can imagine that your prognosis is poor. And I said, you have to double, almost triple your caloric intake because in that setting, remember that the cancer's taking a quarter, maybe half of your calories to, to grow. And it's almost like you have an enemy inside that is taking things away from you and you need to almost double, if not triple, to maintain your weight, if not try to increase it. And so nutrition is absolutely key. So I tell my patients, three to five protein shakes a day while you're going through therapy three to five protein shakes through everything you're doing because you have to maintain good protein stores, good nutrition and activity. Because at the end of the day, this is a fight. And when, whether we're going into a marathon or whether we're going into a ring, it doesn't matter. We need to be fit nutritionally, mentally, spiritually, what have you, it needs to happen. And so yeah, nutrition, I don't give anybody any recommendations. I say, eat what you can, eat whatever it takes. Do I believe that certain things might afflict cancer better more than others? Maybe, but at this point, I mean, we're in the midst of a fight. We just need to maintain good nutritional status. What do you say, Roberta? No Dr. Pepper? That was your big epiphany here. <laughs> I had to give up my Dr. Pepper for instead of coffee. I wasn't a coffee drinker, but I had my Dr. Pepper every morning and yeah. had to give it up. But you know what? The changes I made, like I said, made a difference. And co combining all that, I, I don't know the answer, but the traditional with the non-traditional was very helpful. But my doctors were on clue and knew what I was doing. So nothing hidden there but i agree you have to be very very careful so make sure you you know talk to your team and exactly and make yeah. sure that what you're doing is going to help and not hurt you in any way i'm, I'm going to take roberta's role here and ask you the last question here where do you send people because roberta said the time, first time i met her we've been doing this a while she said don't go to google <laughs> you're just going to immediately google and you're going to get confused you're going to get depressed where, where do you go where do you send people when they get this horrible diagnosis where do they start you know, at the end of the day, you're never going to stop you from going to Google. I'm sorry, Google. I mean, the Internet is going to be the Internet for the end of the day. But I always tell people, listen, use it as a means to get a background of what theoretically could be there. I caution people from getting to relying too much on those datas. You know, and, and I wish I could speak to the entire world when it comes to pancreatic cancer and what my beliefs are. But, you know, when I when they come to my office, I said, listen, you know, read what you like, get a good foundation to what the disease process is. But at the end of the day, this is our team, right? We're in a huddle and we're getting ready to score that winning touchdown like Michigan did the other day. You notice right? I have my Michigan shirt right on thing. here today. Uh, right? yeah. So, you know, we're in a huddle and what's in this huddle stays in this huddle for the most part. And this is, this is what our next plan is, regardless of what's on the outside. And we have to break through. And so, you know, I think that, yeah, while, you know, the internet and Google can be informative, at the end of the day, it can also bring your stress levels really high and just bring your hope down. And so I tell people what happens in this huddle, in this room, in our discussions, is what we move forward. And I try to give the positivity like no other and try to really push them to believe that there is hope 
that there never is no hope. Even at the moment of death, we still have hope because at the end of the day, you know, unfortunately we all die, right? We all die, but it's how we die that really matters. And, you know, I think that having an incredible quality of life and, and the people that we love around us is so important. And having that, even at the last moment, to have that hope that things are going to be okay. Well, I hope you'll bring Living Hope, this podcast, into your huddle here and onto the team here. Because that's what we've tried to create this a story. There's no right or wrong. Here's real stories of real people and what they're really going through. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being with us. I, we could keep going because there's so much more. I, w- I would love to have you come back again because there's so much more I think we could talk about. But I do want to thank you. I know how busy you are and do want to thank you for giving us this time. And we appreciate you being here. Please. And as long as you speak my name, I shall live forever is dedicated to Shauna Stein and the others who have participated in a clinical trial with our deepest appreciation because we could not be where we are today without those clinical trials. Thank you. Well, there you have it. One more reason to tune in each and every time. Get some living hope. Share the weekly journeys of those really affected by this deadly disease and how they deal with it on a daily basis. And if you know anybody that needs help like today, there's lots of organizations. He mentioned PANCAN. Let's also mention uh, Let's Win Pancreatic Cancer. Let's Win PC.org is how to find them. But even a phone number, 212 359 Let's win pancreatic cancer. That's the mood for today here as we wrap up this show. Streaming live here on Orange County's only community radio station, OC Talk Radio, from our studio here at the University of California Irvine's Beale Applied Innovation Center. 